we started a new series last week. Uh, I was really thankful for uh, Michael Chappell bringing the word. He did a great job starting off. Yeah, that's right. I expect y'all to cheer that loud for me. Um, kind of. Uh, but we, he started a great series for us called The Kingdom, and we were talking about the kingdom of God. And today we're going to talk about a little different aspect, but I want to tell you first, back at the beginning of 2020, before everything went absolutely bonkers, right? Did not know, you know, we had heard on the news a couple of times about COVID, or, or at that time it was basically only called coronavirus. Sherry and I had the really cool opportunity to go on a mission trip to speak to a group of missionaries from all over Europe and even parts of Africa. It was a really cool opportunity. And when they called and invited us, I was thinking, okay, they'll probably be coming home on furlough. It'll be somewhere in the United States. And then they said, oh, by the way, it's going to be in Florence, Italy. I was like, I'm there. I'm there. I'll do what I'll crawl. I'll swim if I have to. We'll do whatever we have to do. So we had that cool opportunity to go to Florence, Italy. Spent some time there with some amazing people, some we've really kept in contact with even to this day. People are doing God's kingdom work. And then we got to explore, we got to sightsee and be a tourist, and that was pretty cool. And it was a new experience for me. I'd been out of the country to Mexico and Canada, and I guess the, the bigger language barrier is Canada probably. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But I had never been to a, a country like Italy where I absolutely didn't know any of the language. I know a little bit of Spanish, enough to probably get me in trouble but I didn't know hardly any Italian, but I wasn't nervous. It was really cool. You know, there's some similarities to Spanish. So I could pick out some, you know, words on signs and things like that. And everybody was really friendly and a lot of people knew English. And so that wasn't as much of a culture shock. I was just so excited to be there and all these new opportunities, see these amazing. We saw uh, uh, Michelangelo's David statue, the real one. It was, that was really cool. We saw all kinds of beautiful architecture and history and art. But I'll tell you the greatest culture shock that we had was after we spent a little over a week in Italy, we then made a trip on our way back and we stopped in Ireland to visit with our missionaries, Luke and Tiffany Swain, who um, asked us to actually come over there and speak to the conference. And so we spent a few days with them seeing what they do in Ireland. And went out and did a lot of cool things, saw some amazing, I mean, the countryside is beautiful there as well, just like it is in Italy, different but beautiful. But then the greatest cultural shock for me was this. Went out with Luke to play basketball with a group of Irish guys. That wasn't the shot. That wasn't the shot. But on the way back, it's kind of late at night, and he says, do you want to drive? And I said, oh, yeah. And actually, I should say the guy's name was Suk Lane. I don't know if that's a felony uh, or an international crime to not drive, you know, have a license to drive. So it wasn't Luke Swain. It was Suk Lane. That was who let me drive. And I don't know if I'm going to be found guilty or not now. Interpol might be calling my house if y'all if y'all ever played Carmen Sandiego, y'all know who Interpol is. Um, evidently, y'all didn't do that. Evidently, y'all didn't do that. So anyway, he says, you want to drive? And I was like, absolutely, I want to drive. Okay, because, you know, it's like in England, you know, it's on the right-hand side. It's on the, the opposite side of the road. And, you know, and so you, you've got a, uh, actually, no, they drive on the right-hand side, I believe. So they drive on the right-hand side, but it's a right-hand drive car. And it was a five-speed. So I'm sitting there. I'm over on the edge of the road here, and I've got to shift with my left hand, which I've never done. I've had plenty of five-speed cars myself, automatic, I mean, um, uh, standard transmission. 
And, and you know, I've, I've shifted gears plenty of times, but it was weird to be on right-hand drive. And it was like a, a weird thing. It was a cool thing. I wanted to absolutely do it. But, you know, you're meeting cars and you're far away and you feel like the middle of your car and they're little narrow roads. You know, they don't have lines on the side of the roads very often. And, man, I just knew at any moment Luke was just going to be sitting beside me and then all of a sudden, boom, he's going to be gone, you know, <laughs> because I was going to have drifted over center. And it was just a weird feeling, a weird situation. And, but it was so cool. It was a really cool opportunity to do it. I got the hang of it pretty decently, you know, and it, it was a little bit strange. But that was a moment where I was like, I am not at home. You know, this is not where I'm from. This is not my country. And I want to ask you, have you ever had a moment like that? Sometimes you have those clear moments when you're walking around here. Maybe you've been born and raised here. And we'll just say here in the United States or wherever you're from. And you think, man, this place is not my home. I hope you've had those moments. But the sad truth is, is that in regards to our faith, many times there's not enough of those moments for us. When we have those times when we're sort of hit between the eyes or hit in the heart, where we realize, man, this world is not my home because too, too often this place truly becomes our home. And that's a dangerous place to find ourselves feeling completely at home here in this world. Not just in this state, not just in this city, not just in this country, but in this world in general. And we know if we've read the Bible, we've heard any amount of the Bible, you've probably caught on to the concept that we are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be aliens and strangers, that we are to be the weird ones. So the question I want to look at for a few moments this morning is this. What does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven look like? What does a citizen of the kingdom of God look like? We talked about last week with the walls and how we don't need to be another gate to keep people out, but we need to allow people in. And that means we need to go out and bring them in many times. But what does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven look like? Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, Paul gives a little bit of an overview here. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think about Paul writing those letters and I've had those moments where I've realized that I've become too much like this world and I see other believers who have struggled with the same things and, and I even have tears at times when I think about them that their God is literally their stomach. What can I do right here and right now? How can I meet my desires and my wants right here, right now? But that's not who we are to be. We are not of this world. We are part of a different kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And the truth is, folks, the truth is this. Even in the church, that's a struggle, right? It's nice to sometimes tell ourselves that, oh, he's talking about people who are outside of the church. They struggle with realizing where they're from and who their God is and make their God their stomach. They're the ones that struggle with that. But even in the church, we as human beings, we struggle with focusing on the here and the now, looking inward and thinking selfishly. It's a struggle. 
We talked about, like I said last week, about the kingdom gates and making sure that we share our faith. So the question I want us to really think about or the angle I want us to think about this week in regards to that is what kind of lives do we live so that when we open our mouth to speak about Jesus that people want to hear what we have to say? What does a kingdom citizen look like? What do our actions do to either hopefully support what we say, not go against what we say? So they want to hear what we have to say so our actions don't drown out our words when we share our faith in Jesus. Even before Paul penned these words to the church at Philippi, Jesus shared what a kingdom citizen looks like. He spoke in the Sermon on the Mount and in the sermon he shared what we call the Beatitudes. He tells in detail what a citizen of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven looks like. And it's broken down into a couple of parts. It says in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to follow along your Bibles, we've got scripture up on the screen, of course. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, See, Jesus takes some time and he's going to break down. I believe if you look at it with me, you'll see there's a couple of categories that you can sort of summarize the Beatitudes that Jesus teaches. And in these first three to six verses, he talks about specifically this kind of category. Upward focused. Upward focused. And that really is summed up also or described in the way of, of this. Humility before God. Do you have humility before God? The first one he shares is right here recognize your lostness. If we're going to be a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we have to recognize our lostness. Now, many of you may say, oh, well, that, that's easy to do. But let's be honest. Let's be real. Some of us think we're pretty daggone good. Am I right? Have you ever been there? Now, some of you are, are like more like I've been. I, I have tended to beat myself up and think that I wasn't worthy of ever, God ever loving me. And thankfully, by the grace of God, I realized that that also is pride. It's a different kind of pride, and you might make yourself think that it's humility, but really it's a different, it's the, you swing so far on the spectrum of, of humility, you circle back around to pride. But sometimes we feel like, especially maybe if we've been a believer for a long time, we think, I'm, I'm pretty good, and God's pretty lucky to have me. You might not ever say those words, but your actions scream it. You know, where you're like, man, I've got it figured out. At least I'm not like this sinner beside me. And a lot of you wives looked at your husbands, right? And you're thinking, <laughs> you're thinking that. So here's the thing. We have to recognize our losses. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you hear this word blessed, this word uh, blessed has been made a hashtag, right? Hashtag blessed. And we think about blessings and about how we want more stuff. Honestly, that's the sad truth is that we've become to expect blessings to mean stuff or blessings to mean success in earthly terms. But that is not what it truly means to be blessed. If we're talking about being the kingdom of the citizen of heaven, we've got to understand that we are blessed when we're poor in spirit. For theirs, people who have that attitude is the kingdom of heaven. Now let me say this again because I don't want anybody to walk out of here hearing this. I'm not talking about, this isn't talking about self-hatred. 
This is not, oh, I'm going to be like, you know, there are, are certain monks in, in different parts of the world that literally will do horrible things to their bodies and hurt themselves because they feel like it brings them closer to God because they experience this physical pain. And if you're doing it to yourself, that's not really what he meant, you know? He does, does teach, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in, in, in depth and a little bit later, is that we could be persecuted and we could experience physical pain because of our faith, but it's not just an act that we put on. It's not just a ritual that we go through. What we need to understand is it's not self-hatred or it's not even not seeing any value in yourself because you are created by God. Even if you don't love God, you're created by Him. And so you have inherent value because you were created by an all-loving God. But here's what it is. It's recognizing your desperate need for God. It's recognizing your desperate need for God. If you truly understand that, you'll be blessed. And as we understand what that word means, it means happy. It literally can be translated in the Greek, happy. You can be a happy person. And it's not just a surface happiness. You know, it's not just running around, you know, kicking your heels. Y'all can't believe I can do that, right? I will be icing up later on tonight. Just don't worry. But it was worth it for right now. But that's not what we're just talking about, being silly, goopy, you know, slap happy. And that's, that can be part of it. But true joy, happiness comes from submitting yourself to God and recognizing your lostness before God without Christ. When we feel like we're pretty good people, here's the danger. We're tempted to believe somewhere deep down, even if we don't say it, even if we don't audibly, so to, so to speak, in our head, think it, we're tempted to think we don't need God. I told our, our staff we get together for a weekly meeting, of course, for a long time now. It's been on Zoom. But we try to do some sort of devotion or something to kind of build our, you know, our, our, just our skills or things like that. And I had a little bit of a, a, a revelation, if you will, in doing Bible study. And I was reading in, um, I was reading in, uh, just went completely blank where I was reading. I did read the Bible, trust me. Um, I was reading in the Bible, I'll just say that. I was reading in the Scripture. And I came away with this idea is that I sort of go into autopilot sometimes. And I would never say this out loud, but I kind of caught myself realizing that I felt like if I grow stronger as a Christian, it's almost like I'm working to not need the Spirit as much. And when you say it out loud, it sounds like idiocy. But how many times have we been guilty with that? It's like, if I could just get a little bit better, I wouldn't have to rely on God's Holy Spirit and He could share that more with somebody else. I mean, we don't say that kind of stuff, but that's kind of the way that we sort of live our lives. But what I've realized, and I've said this over and over, but it hit me between the eyes and God was trying to get my attention, is that the more that you live as a Christian, the more that you grow closer to Christ, the more that you need the Spirit of God. Because that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, as it says in Galatians. To walk in the Spirit every day, allowing the fruit of the Spirit to, to grow and to choke out the fruit of the flesh or the acts of the flesh. We must realize without Christ that we are lost. We need God more today than we even maybe did before we came to Him for the very first time. But Jesus goes on and He teaches another point of what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom. And He says, Broken by our sin. That's what we need to look for. Look at verse 4. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There was a lot of times in my life that I would read this passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And I wanted to attribute it to emotional pain. And it can be, and God does that. God absolutely gives us comfort for our emotional pain and loss and grief and when we mourn over things like that. But I don't believe that's the first understanding of what we're talking about here. I think when Jesus was talking here, as he says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He continues a similar thought. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I believe what God is trying to say first and foremost is that God is absolutely, absolutely, when we recognize our lostness, he comforts us because we mourn because we're so far from God. And when we realize our sinfulness, True repentance means that it leads us to mourn because we've hurt our relationship with the Almighty God. We, we've talked about recently in just the past couple of weeks about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And many times we struggle with only having worldly sorrow. We feel bad when we get caught. And we don't want the punishment to go, you know. We, I use the example, you know, you don't always feel bad about speeding until what? You see blue lights behind you? And then you feel the pain of the ticket, you know, and like court costs, woo, court costs, that's something, ain't it? Ticket wouldn't be that bad, court costs will get you. And you're like, I want to be free from this, this pain of these court costs, this, this fine, this punishment that I have to deal with. My insurance might go up. But true repentance is realizing that you've offended the Almighty God and it breaks your heart and it causes you to mourn absolutely don't misunderstand me god will comfort us in our pain our emotion emotional and mental pain he will do that but we'll never be free from it this side of heaven we'll never be free of, of mourning in that way this side of heaven but we can understand that if we mourn because of our sin that god will comfort us because those are the kind of people that seek him and it says they shall be comforted the next idea or, or characteristic that we need to be have in our lives to be a citizen of the kingdom is this. Controlling your desires. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think most of you may know this, but I, I need to say it because I need to be reminded of it. Meekness is not weakness. Many times, especially we as men, we see that word meekness and we think it means weakness. But on the contrary, it actually means kind of the exact opposite. It's some of the greatest strength because what it literally means or carries the idea is it power under control. In ancient times, that word that's translated meekness was often used to describe war stallions that were bridled and under the control of their master. And if that doesn't get you fired up as a believer, remind yourself that you're a war stallion. Ho, 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 ho. You know, like that. Although horses don't have, they can't bend their legs like that. But you get what I'm saying. But if you want to feel strong, then realize you need to be meek like Jesus. Because Jesus is and was the greatest definition of meekness because he was the ultimate example of power restrained. You think about it. You think about as Jesus hung there on the cross and people hurled insults at Him. 
They mocked him and they laughed at him. They spit on him. They told him to come down from the cross if he was able. You think about his hands as they were there, his na- the nails through his wrists and his hands were bird clawed because of the piercing of that, that nerve and that excruciating pain he was going through. All he would have had to have done was, and he wouldn't even have had to done that. He wouldn't even had to have snapped his fingers, but if he wanted to do it for show, he could have. He could have just said, "This is it. It's over." Boom. If you're a Marvel fan like Thanos, but instead of half the population, it could have been all the population destroyed. He could have. He had the power to do this, but he chose not to because of his great love. And so when we decide that we want to be meek, we say, God, yes, I want your power of your Holy Spirit, and I'm going to do my best to control my responses, to control my desires so that other people can see Jesus through me and in me. That's when you'll be truly happy as well. That's when you'll be happy as a a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He also goes on and he tells us another one that will summarize like this. Seek God with everything that you have. Seek God with everything. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Have you ever, think back to when you were a kid, were you ever fussed at? by your parents or for kids that are in the room that are listening have you ever been fussed at by your parents for spoiling your dinner uh, yeah thank you Josiah for being honest and Luke being honest they, they were a picky one so far and Andrew he just doesn't know he's, but he's picky I was picky too I would go and I would sneak snacks you know I'd get my little Debbie oatmeal cake or I'd get my pop tart uh, you know, and I would eat that, you know, uh, 30 minutes before dinner, right? And then when it came time for dinner, this really great meal that my mom had cooked or that Sherry had cooked, or once in a while, I might even, you know, throw something on the grill, you know, and my kids don't want it or I didn't want it. Why? Because they had done what? Spoiled their dinner. They had eaten something that wasn't as good and missed out on the great health and meal that they could have. And that's what most of us do with our spiritual lives. We fill up on junk and we don't really want then the real milk and meat of the Word of God. We fill ourselves up with stuff that will not satisfy us. But Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And man, you know, now as I've gotten older, I can look back and see that when I would spoil my dinner, by eating junk. Yes, that stuff tasted good for a moment, but man, you right now, you ask me, a perfectly cooked steak or a little Debbie cake, that little Debbie cake is going in the trash. No, actually, I'm going to put it to the side and I'll eat it later. But the steak, the steak is where it's at, right? That's the real sustenance. That's the real food. That's what I want. And you and I need to do the same thing spiritually. We need to make sure we dig and dive into that meat of the Word and hunger and thirst for it like a person wandering in the desert thirst for water. But here's the trick. Many times we think that, you know, in in an earthly sense, that when we go without, that's what makes us really hunger and thirst. But when it comes to the spiritual food, The only thing that truly makes us hunger and thirst more for it is, guess what? Consuming it. And it awakes a hunger and a thirst in us. So don't think you're doing good by starving yourself spiritually. You're not a spiritual camel. 
I don't care how many humps you got on your back. You know, you are not like that. You don't store it up. You need it every day. And that creates a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in your life. We fill up on the junk of this world and then we don't have any hunger or thirst for the righteousness of God. So those first few verses there, Jesus gets the idea of upward focus, humility before God. But a lot of times we can sort of think the more that we look to God and allow His light to shine on us, that we're like a mirror, that hopefully when that light hits us, then it does what? It goes outward. It reflects outward. And so these next few verses here are outward focused. Our mercy towards people, or mercy towards mankind, if you will, men. Showing mercy to others is the next characteristic we see in verse 7. Showing mercy to others. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you've ever heard the story of the unmerciful servant, you know, the guy who goes in, he owes this pretty good-sized debt to the king, and he begs for mercy, and the king has mercy on him and lets him go, and as soon as he goes out, he sees a guy that owes him, uh, you know, this just a little sum of money. You know, he owed the king this, this exponentially large debt that he could never pay, but this next guy, he owes him just a little bit, but he says, I want payment right here and right now. And he's choking the guy, and so the king throws him back into prison and says, you're never getting out. You're never getting out because you wouldn't show mercy after mercy was shown to you. How many times can you relate to that? You receive mercy from God, but then somebody else does you wrong. You're like, oh, no, there's no way I could forgive them. You know, you get the head bobbing, you get the finger snapping. No, you're not, I'm not going to forgive you because we don't believe that we should show mercy after we've been shown great mercy. Mercy can be described as sparing from the punishment that is deserved. You know, grace is unmerited favor. It's a gift that makes glad. But mercy is sparing us from something that we deserve to receive, but we don't get it because God's love is so great. And then we're called to do that with other people. You and I deserve death for our sin, but God in His mercy spared us from that death and gives us life. And then in turn, we're called to forgive other people. And we're called to show mercy and don't hold them as guilty. But that's a different thing than our first response is. We want to hold people. We want to feel like we have power over them. We want them to feel pain like they caused us pain and heartache. But that is not the way of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that may be one of the most difficult lessons to learn. Is that's not what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. Because we've been shown mercy as we focus upward. Then it flashes out outward the next characteristic can be described as pure-hearted pure-hearted look at verse 8 jesus said blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god you ever met one of those people that's pure in heart probably not a lot of people But there are so many people in this world, if you open your eyes, that can be described as pure in heart. But that's what all of us are called to be. All of us are called to be. We're called to be pure in heart. Those are the kind of people that will see God. And here's what we need to understand. That it's it's talking about being pure in our actions, but also pure in our motives. As we talked about earlier, sometimes we, as we live in Christ and we grow in as a Christian we sort of get our minds and our hearts focused on the wrong things and we think I'm pretty good I've, I've made a pretty good way for myself and God's pretty lucky to have me but 
then if our motives aren't pure, it really is not quite as important what we do. It doesn't matter as much what we do if our motives don't show the same thing. We talk about, and a lot of people do, but we talk about here at Movement being real and authentic. And that means that, yes, we admit we struggle, we admit we sin, but it also means that when we do the right things, it comes from a pure heart and pure motives. That's our goal is to make sure that that's true all the time. And, and if you're like me, you're going to struggle with that. Sometimes you're just nice to people because Jesus said so. Let's be honest. <laughs> but my goal and your goal is to make sure that that becomes less frequent is that you're kind to them because God is kind to you and you've got the joy and the privilege to show the love of Jesus to people. And so it's our goal to make sure that our motives are pure as well as our actions. And we can talk about that as sincerity. We can talk about that as authenticity. But let me just say enough. It's not simply enough to just do the right thing if your heart isn't in it. Because here's the problem. Eventually, the heart comes to the surface. And if you spend year upon year, or week upon week, or month upon month, simply only doing the right things, but it not coming from the heart, eventually the heart's going to come bubbling up. And then all that good is going to be undone. And every bridge that you built will be bombed and torn down and burned down and who knows the people that are going to go scattering into the wind away from Jesus. Because they've seen a false example in you. And I know that's pressure. And I'm not saying that it's up to us to be the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying any of that. But let's do our best to allow God to change us from the inside out. Not simply the outside and hopefully the inside will get taken care of later. We have to make sure that we become pure-hearted, more so every day, to look like Jesus so that people can see Jesus through us and in us. He also goes on and tells us the next uh, characteristic is this. Ambassadors of peace is the way I want to describe it. Ambassadors of peace. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or daughters of God. It's not simply being agreeable or nice. I don't know how long I thought that as a Christian. I thought, okay, Christians are supposed to be nice. And then I met a lot of Christians. <laughs> I'm like, well, they didn't get the memo. But yeah, I'm just kidding. We're all imperfect. We're all imperfect. But here's the thing. It's not simply about being nice as the world would term it. You know, the world would also describe love as just pure acceptance without any responsibility. But that's not what biblical love is either. That's not what biblical niceness or goodness is. But what we need to understand is that we're called to be peacemakers. And it's not simply about being agreeable or nice and just allowing people to do whatever they want and not making any waves. That's a peacemaker. Nope, that's not it at all. That may be a part of it, to be kind, to be nice, to be gentle. We're told that in Scripture. But here's one thing we got to understand. We cannot be agreeable when people try to tell us to ignore God's standards. We cannot be agreeable when people tell us don't listen to God's standards. That is not being a peacemaker. But ultimately, what we need to understand first and foremost about being a peacemaker is we need to help people understand what it's like to have peace between God and people. And that only comes through Jesus. And so that's the kind of peacemaker that we need to be first and foremost. 
And when kindness and goodness are a part of that, amen, absolutely, that needs to be a part of it. But first and foremost, we need to worry about peace between God and us. If we have had peace made with us through Jesus Christ, it's our duty to make sure that our neighbors, our friends, and our family know that peace as well. And that's the kind of peacemakers that we're called to be because that's the only true peace. You and I can stop fighting and arguing for a little bit, even on Facebook, believe it or not. (laughs) But when we know Jesus, that's when we have true peace. And then there's another characteristic we see here in the last couple of verses. Different, different. Look at verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me say this, and I believe that we as Christians struggle with this a lot. I'm just asking you to think about this. Right now, we have this phrase that's being thrown around left and right called cancel culture. And Christians, a lot of times now, are feeling the effect of cancel culture. But the sad thing is, and I'm not saying it's it's 100% right or wrong. It's a gray area. You can debate about it. But for years, the church has done something called cancel culture. And we just yelled and screamed at people who were different than us. And we said, change, change your attitudes, change your actions. We don't share Jesus with them. And so we've canceled a lot of people who saw our actions and don't want anything to do with Jesus because they thought that's who Jesus was. And so we need to make sure that if we're persecuted, and we should be, I hate to say it, but we should be persecuted, but if we're persecuted, it's not because we're a jerk. It's not because we're hateful. It's not because we're ugly acting people, but it's because we simply tell the truth and love and sometimes that hurts people. Because if you find out that your friend has cancer, you're going to do all you can to make sure they get surgery and treatment to cure that cancer. And those treatments and those surgeries are going to be painful, but you want to get that illness, that sickness, that disease, that death out of their body so they can be healed. And it might hurt at first, but you want them to be free. Amen? You want them to live, and so you might be persecuted. It says you will be persecuted, but let it not be because you are a jerk or I'm a jerk. Let it be because you tell the truth in love, and yet sometimes people still don't want to hear it. We have to be willing to stand when everyone else says sit down sometimes. We have to be willing to speak in love even if everybody calls it hate. Even if they call the simple truth or loving message, hey, we need to be willing to speak even when they say be quiet. And there's a constant struggle in this kingdom that we're a part of. It's our civil war, if you will. It's the battle between upward and outward focus versus inward focus. And that's the constant friction that we have. God has told us through Jesus' Son that we need to be upward and outward focused, but we often just want to be inward focused. We want to be focused on ourselves individually, but we also want to be focused on ourselves as a church family. Once we get people that we like, we're like, all right, we're full. Don't really have time or space for new people, but shame on us if that's the attitude and the heart we take. If we think that the church exists to meet our needs, then we have sorely misunderstood the mission of the gospel. 
Yes, our needs get met as we serve and as we humbly go out and reach out to other people, but that is not our first purpose. Our first purpose is to go out and reach out to other people, not make sure that our needs are met. Because too many times when we're focused on just us, we're focusing on our wants, not our needs. And when I'm looking in the mirror, if I'm honest, I know that that's true. And so it's easy to catch yourself thinking a lot about you, yourself. Even as you become a Christian, even as you grow in Christ, I'm going to say something that on the surface is probably going to upset people. But hey, it's fun sometimes. <laughs> Make him, you're a jerk, you know, whatever. There's a phrase that's overused now. In and of itself, the phrase is not bad, so hear that. But we talk a lot about self-care. Self-care. Self-care is not bad. Many people never get themselves filled up. And we'll think, let's think about it in church context, scripture and, and spiritual context. Many people will serve, 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 but never fill up their spirit. And that's wrong. You need to practice self-care, if you will, in that sense. But what our culture has done, and I believe even in the church has overrun, is we, all we do is think about self-care, self-care, self-care. And people are dying and going to hell while we're caring for ourselves. And that's what's wrong. That's the, the issue that you and I need to focus on getting that mess out of our lives. Yes, we need to understand the biblical principle of rest. I believe we've missed that sorely as Christians for hundreds of years about what true biblical rest is so that we can serve. We need to understand the, the biblical concepts of, of margin, of making sure you've got time and space in your life to spend time with your family, share your faith, all these different things combined together. We need to understand the biblical principle of, of healthy boundaries and learning how to say no and, and all these sort of things. All these things are true, but the world as always distorts them and it morphs from health to self-absorption. And on a spiritual level, there are a lot of times when people will leave a certain church body and on the way out the door, they take this grenade, they go, throw it in the middle, and when it blows up, you know what the big sign says? Like the cartoons? <laughs> I wasn't being fed. People love to do that. Sometimes there's two or three of them. I wasn't being fed. I wasn't being fed. Now hear this. I'm just going to try to make people mad all, all day today, I guess. There are times when you're a brand new Christian, you need to be fed. But pretty quickly, you need to learn how to feed yourself. And even more importantly, you need to learn how to feed other people. And nine times out of ten, when somebody says... They leave a church family because they're not being fed. Nine times out of ten, that's somebody who was a 45-year-old infant. They've been a Christian for 45 years, and, and, and they don't learn how to feed themselves, or they don't care about feeding other people. And we need to stop focusing so much, so much on self-care and focusing on our upward focus that then reflects to our outward focus, and we don't get uh, focused on inward stuff We've got to make sure that we feed other people. And, and I'll say this, when we get our, our church home, our more permanent church home, we don't want to become an inward-focused church. And there will be a real temptation for that. 
like, ah, we finally have our space and we finally have this place 24-7 and we can do all these things that make us feel good. And there'll be time for that. But primarily, all that place needs to be is a launch pad for, for mission work to go out into the community to let people know that Jesus is here and it gives us more visibility and more opportunity and it does not need to become our place of holy huddle. Am I right? Only a few agree, I guess. <laughs> it doesn't need to become our place of our holy huddle where we say, oh yeah, we've got our good safe space for Christians. This is the only thing, the only people allowed in. Everybody else needs to stay on the outside. We might not ever say those words, but let's make sure our actions don't scream those words. Let's do all we can to not just entertain ourselves, but love our community just like we always have. Honestly, we're just not that kind of church. We've never been that kind of church that simply sits back and serves ourselves. We have strived to be one of the 17% like we talked about back on our birthday. The 17% of the spies that went and saw and gave a good report because they understood that God was good even when the land was scary. And you and I are called to be that kind of person we love, we serve, we move until the neighborhood knows Jesus as Christ and Lord. That's what we do here at Movement Church. And the question that comes up from that is why? Why would we do that? It's a whole lot better to entertain ourselves and be comfortable. Because this isn't our kingdom. It's not our kingdom. This doesn't belong to us. This is God's kingdom and we serve a king who died for us and the entire world. That's why we act this way. That's why we think this way. Here's something I want to wrap up with. True self-care is dying to self. You'll never ever be satisfied doing Self-care the way the world tells you to do it. Looking out for number one. Making sure you're taken care of and then you can take care of other people. Yes, that's going to happen. But what I've seen, I've seen it from, from failure time and time again, trial and error, is that the more that I share my faith, the more I'm inspired to go and dig down deeper to grow myself. But when I only focus on myself, I just become inward focused and I shrivel up on the vine and die in a sense. And so we've got to do our best to make sure that we understand that true self-care is dying to self. You won't find fulfillment or health or balance in our world's philosophies and practices. But the kingdom of God will grow when citizens are sold out to be Jesus' people. That's when the kingdom of God will grow. He closes this section in verses 13 through 16, Jesus does, and He says, you are salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salt? How, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we're going to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then we need to look for all of these characteristics in our lives. And let me make sure that I say this as we sort of wrap it all up. There's a temptation as you read through the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes to say, well, okay, I see somebody, that, that guy's pure in heart. 
And, and that guy is poor in spirit. And that guy is, stands up and is recognized and is different. So he's persecuted. And so we've got all those in our church. So I'll find my one and I'll be that one. <clears throat> Jesus is describing how we need to have all of these characteristics in our lives. And that's a, that's a struggle. That's going to be difficult because these things don't come naturally many times. But we need to understand that we need to apply all these things to our lives and start allowing ourselves because the, through the transformation of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God in us to become like these characteristics that we see here in Jesus' message. Just like salt preserves and light shines in dark places. That's what a kingdom citizen is supposed to do. Preserve life and shine light in dark places. The question is, are you shining and where are you shining? Are you being a citizen of the kingdom of God or a citizen of your little kingdom? Jesus didn't come and die on the cross for all of us to have our own little kingdoms. So if you want to truly be free and know what fulfillment is and know what true self-care is and know what looking out for number one really is, it's dying to self, surrendering to the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. And if today that's what you need to do, then that's what you need to do. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you want Him to be your Lord and Savior, that means you just simply turn away from your life of sin. You repent. You confess Him as Lord and King. You meet Him in baptism. He washes away your sin. He raises you up to a new life. He gives you the Holy Spirit of God. And you can be a citizen of the kingdom, the greatest kingdom that has ever lived or ever will live. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Kingdoms, that's right. Kingdoms rise and fall, but His kingdom will stand forever. And that's the only kingdom that you and I can be a part of if we want to experience life and joy forever. So if today you need to become a part of that kingdom, then let's make sure we make that happen. Surrender. But maybe you've done that. Maybe you've been a part of this kingdom, but then also you slip out every now and then and you kind of build another brick in your kingdom. It's time to get the bulldozer and knock that thing down. Throw a stick of dynamite at it and blow it up. Push it off into the ocean so it goes down to the bottom of the sea and just say, Jesus, I'm yours. Start today to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And that probably won't happen very well if you just kind of keep it to yourself. So we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you and help you figure out how you can take those steps to not repeat the same old little kingdom building that you've done year after year, week after week, or month after month. But it all starts with surrendering to the one true King. That's what you need to do today. Let's stand. Let's stand. Let's stand.